Let's do it. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Pablo Riveros, the founder of Manabu.dev, is with us today. Pablo, thank you so much for coming on the show. You sound great. The room you're in looks amazing. <laughs> How are you, by the way? I'm very good. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me to your podcast. So I'm very happy to be here. It is my complete pleasure. Look, let's give the listeners a little bit of your background, just for some context. Yes, sure. Uh, well, um, I'm originally from Chile. I was born in Chile. Wow. But then in my 20s, I moved to Australia. Uh, I lived in Australia for around 15 years. Uh, I opened my first community, digital mama community in Australia when I was in my 20s. And then during that time, I also moved back, moved to uh, the Netherlands. So I live in the Netherlands for, for a year, back to Australia, back to Chile. And my last time, it was uh, it was in, in Australia, working at the University of Queensland. It's one of the second largest research university in Australia. And during that time, I was I really wanted to do something new. And then I met my beautiful wife. She's from, from Fukuoka, from Japan. And then I decided to, yeah, and then I decided to move to uh, to Japan and open my own startup. My wife is also Japanese, just so you know. So yes. we've been there, done that. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. And Fukuoka, by the way, a beautiful city. Can I ask it you is. this? You said you built a digital community when you were in Australia. What was yes. the importance? Like, why did you think that was an important thing to do? What's the importance of communities in general? Right? Because I think it's a cool idea. Yes, I, I guess I, I started my community eight years ago when I was I was living actually in in Cairns in the north north of Australia, Queensland, and I guess I, communities is part of how when I, I landed in Australia, I didn't have too many people uh, connecting with them or find a job opportunity. So the community in the beginning started as a backpacker community. We help each other. We were just five people in the community. We tried to share different type of jobs and. What insurance are you having? You're you got, going to go to the doctor, what you can do and so on. Right. So start building this community. And then uh, it was just about helping each other. And and then after that, it started growing. And now uh, after the pandemic, I guess uh, we got a peak in our communities. Now we, have, we are around 10,000 global members. Um, we have different communities uh, in, on social media. We met, basically, mostly we use Facebook. And we have a communities in Cairns, in Sunshine Coast, uh, in Taiwan, Taipei, and also uh, build a community in Fukuoka as well. So in Fukuoka, we are around roughly uh, around 500 members as well. So I think uh, that was the main reason in the beginning to help each other and find uh, opportunities for, for many people. I think over time, right, if you build a community around a common interest, even if there's no sort of short-term like use for it, that over time, the support and the benefit that you can get from it, not just for you, but for the entire community, can actually end up being really powerful, yeah? Absolutely. You're right. Uh, I think it, the, the support that you can get each other from other people, and you find it great connections. Yeah. Uh, the networking is the key in communities. And I find people that are founder, they're founders now, people work in the government, and it's it's a great, it's a really beautiful um, a value as a, as a society as well, because now we think of, we need to think more collaborative, collective than uh, individual. So I could not agree with you more. Have you ever had a job at a big company? <laughs> my biggest job, I guess, was I finished my high school and I went to the army. I went to the A Force, so I spent I spent oh, wow. ten years working at the A Force. Did you really? I was working in te 
Yes, yes, yes. It's been ten years, and I think I guess that was one of my biggest job. Yeah, uh, I was just in the in the in the HR area tech part of the efforts. I was known to the field, so it was really exciting to learn a lot about uh, cool. technical part, but also about aircraft. Uh, but then, yeah, I guess that's that's one of my, my biggest one. And then I quit and then I moved to Australia. So the second biggest for me was working at the University of Queensland. That's one of the, as I say, it's a very respectful university in Australia. Yeah. So what prompts you to start your own companies? Uh, I guess the passion. Uh, I really want to be my own boss. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to try to help others and, and also the opportunity. Uh, my Tell first me. company was when I was 22 years old. I opened my company in Chile. It was a tourist tourist company, kayaking, doing kayaking activities in the ocean. And I found an opportunity because it was one only one guy in the ocean doing this business, bring a lot of people, put in the water, kayak. And I said, well, there's no more people doing the same. So I talked with one of my good friends at that time and we opened my first company when I was 23. Talk to me about what you learned Right, because the kayak company, not necessarily a tech company per se, but talk to me about what you learned about just at, particularly at that age, the organization, yes. the dedication, the discipline and stuff like that, just to build something from scratch and actually have it to work and earn you enough money to live. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, it was my 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 second uh, kind of income because my main job, it was Air Force. Right. So you can imagine during the weekends, I started running my business and even in the summer, so I, I didn't have a holiday for three three years actually. Uh, I was focusing my in my uh, business, and I guess, as you said, the discipline. Woke up early in the morning, put the kayaks in the ocean, uh, set up a tent, and also I learned a lot about marketing strategies. In fact, during that time when I was twenty three, I signed on a partnership with one of the largest uh, phone company in in South America. The, the name is Claro. Claro, uh, and we signed that, and I got actually uh, everything I got for free. Marketing things, I got a T-shirt, a T-shirt for my staff, beautiful models to give the flyers to the people on the beach. Uh, we got a lot of uh, VIP events, so I created that kind of marketing things. And I thought at that time, I said, "Well, what am I doing when I was twenty-three years old? It's it it it, it could be big." How did you get a partnership with one of the biggest phone companies? Right. I mean, how do you find out who the right person is? How did you know who to call? And then in the end of the day, why were they negotiating with a 22 year old to do this? Yes, I, I guess because they didn't thought at that time to promote their branding in, on the beach right. uh, in the summer. And I think we, I came with this idea to bring I don't, I just networking, go try to go to many events as possible as a, as a, as a owner of my own company. And then during that event, I met the person, the right person in the right place and we connect and they say, you know, I have a, a business in the beach. Would you like to support us as a marketing? And they say, well, yeah, why not? And yeah, this is how I started my, my first entrepreneurial journey. I love it. I think everybody should run their own business from when they're like 15 years old. I really do because I think it's going to change the way the world works. I don't think anybody should ever have like a full-time job job. I think it's so much better to do it the way you've done it. If you are building a business that is beach focused, right? There's some incentive for you, I would think, to keep the beach clean, if that makes sense, right? You want it to be this Absolutely. beautiful, this beautiful experience, right? But when you're done, you want to make it look like you were never there, 
You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like you do the kayaking, you do all that stuff, you have the flyers, you're running around the beach, and when you leave, you want to have it kind of look like, oh my God, nobody did anything here today except enjoy themselves, and then they went home. Can you talk about how you approach sustainability and why that's important to you? Yeah, and you are completely right, because during that time when I was in my 20s, uh, we created this kind of cleaning, uh, the campaign of cleaning the beach, you know, with friends. And awesome. we also uh, never give a plastic bag. I'm not talking about 20, 20 years ago, then the right. sustainability or, or environmental, it was not a key, a key topic. Uh, we always give a paper uh, package to the people, so we never never give it any plastic bag. So we have I have that's kind of conscious at that time. Yeah. But then um, living in Australia after after a few years later, uh, I have the opportunity to to join uh, environmental environmental day, uh, and I I was volunteering and I really had a, a strong passion for sustainability and I was connecting different opportunities back in Chile then in Australia, and then now after long time after I opened my own company in Japan. So the passion was always there. Let's just go back to the beach experience, right? Because I think it's indicative of this as, as a, at a larger scale. But how do you convince others who you see maybe doing business on the beach or you see doing businesses in sort of nature that doing it in a sustainable way is better than doing it in a non-sustainable way? Like, I think it's pretty prescient for a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old to say, you know what, we're not going to give out any plastic bags. We'll just do paper. They're more biodegradable. And even if somebody drops it on the beach, it's easier to pick up and stuff. And it wouldn't harm any any of the wildlife that's there, right? But you may see other people doing something differently. How do you encourage them to kind of come over to your side and think, yeah, that's the right way to do it? I think that what we did very well was to show up, to, to be very open, transparent. And that's we did a lot of campaigns at that time on Facebook. Uh, let's do this kind of collecting the rubbish on the beach, cleaning the beach and all these things. And another thing, it was uh, our competitors at that time, it was another company. They do exactly the same like us. And they start seeing us. Uh, we've got a new branding, marketing, and the guys start changing, actually, their behavior. Because in the beginning, they didn't care. Right. But that's the truth. But when we saw a few bunch of young guys doing things differently, uh, he started copying us. Did he? And he become our very strong competitor for a few years. So. I love it. Sorry, I just love that. I love it. And so talk to me about how you ended up in Japan. I mean, obviously you met somebody. I'm presuming you met your wife in Australia? In Australia, yeah. Okay, and then correct. you decided yeah. to go back with her to... Uh, is she from Kyushu? Yes, that's correct. Yes, she's from Kyushu. That is awesome. Well, I, I guess, yes, absolutely. I, I guess for, uh, for me, myself, I... Because I was in Australia and I was since early age when I was young, I really liked Japan because we got so many influence from yeah. animes and so on. When I was in Australia, I had the opportunity to visit, uh, did a solo trip for a month from Kansai, Osaka up to Kagoshima. And I decided to do this by myself. I spent almost a month traveling all by bus. Oh, I'm talking about... 20 years ago, when the, at that time, the Google map it was all in kanji. So it was such a difficult to navigate in, in Japan. So good. There, is, there was a very rare to see many foreigners at that time. <laughs> and I went to drive down to Kaoshima. That was only the foreigner. I think it was just the passion to, to explore something new. Yeah. Uh, and, and Japan, you know, it's, it's a fascinating uh, country that uh, brought me to, to here. It's so amazing. I rode my bicycle once from Ito. This is in the Izu Peninsula all the way to Shimoda. 
Wow. And this was in 19... <laughs> I can't even say this. This was in 1990. Yeah, in 1990 or 1991. And you're right. When we showed up to rent a hotel, they were just like, who are you guys? What are you doing here? Right? And I, I spoke Japanese, so it was okay to go into the hotel and kind of ask questions. But the treatment that we got was kind of amazing. We may as well have been aliens. Like, it was so amazing to watch. But you're right. It was super challenging. Back then, there was no Google Maps. There were mm -hmm. no maps. And we just, like, rode in the direction we thought we were supposed to go. But it was a blast. It was a super... Lonely, blast. At that time, I, I, I went to... I was with Lonely, Lonely Planet book. Yeah. Book yeah. It, and I, had, I was traveling with that. And so heavy. <laughs> but, yeah. It was the only way at that time. So, Oh, my God. I could tell you so many Lonely Planet stories. <laughs> I really could. In Korea, in Vietnam, like we used Lonely Planet in Indonesia, everywhere we went. It was the only way to get around back then. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Super cool. So talk to me about Manabu. What is Manabu? I mean, I know what it means. Manabu, maybe you want to explain to people what that word means and then exactly what it is. Yes. Says. Maybe I, I guess my, my Japanese is not so good like you, but Manabu... It, it means learn or educate, uh, and, and basically, uh, Manabu, it's uh, a solution that we started uh, building uh, since uh, last year. Okay. And we, what we do is basically we simplify, we help companies to simplify the ESG and sustainability report. The complexity of ESG and, and now it's super trend, and many companies, they have to uh, make an, uh, a very large 150 pages of uh, PDF and then the people nobody understand what is exactly what we want to achieve as a uh, sustainability or environmental policies ESG is a very complex topic and, and we put every, all this data in Manabu that is allowed to companies simplify in a very visual insight dashboard all the data and then they can easily provide a very simplified uh, report and metrics with that kind of information we use AI and machine learning that can provide trends and insights, really, really value insights with percentage that how we can, uh, we are consuming certain amount of electricity and what we can do to reduce that kind of electricity and, and so on. So it's, it's a really powerful solution that we are, we are working on. What is this reporting? To whom does it go? Why do companies even need to do this? And if they are using manabu.dev, what does it look like to them? What is their experience like, right? So where's their data coming from? And then what exactly did those insights tell them what to do and how to do? I know there's a lot there, right? But just kind of walk me through the whole process. I just want to give you a real example of what we're doing in, in Taipei. Uh, there was a building, a 20, 20, 22nd floor building. They never managed uh, the sustainability and, and data before. So we, what we do, uh, we give to them an, an ESG framework, basically it's a template that, they have to fill this with information. Uh, we with this building, we we focus specifically only in environmental data, okay. like uh, water consumption, electricity consumption, uh, gas, even paper consumption. As you can imagine, many countries in Asia, there still are some of them use consume a lot of paper. Yeah. Paper. So we collect this data uh, and we fill this into our software. And after this, um, the building manager can see the big picture of the building uh, in terms of how much water we're consuming. So we collected data from the last three years, 2021, 22, 23, and then we put in our software and they could see for the first time, not just the random numbers, how much money we are spending. Because we, we can we can discuss about the environment. The environment. The companies, to be honest, they really focus about the, the operational cost and how we can reduce that operational cost. 
without any visual uh, data, it's super, super hard to understand that. So then we collect this data and we we put in our pro version that can the company can see the big pictures with all the metrics and easy to understand. And at the same time, we can provide personalized training with this data. So what we did actually, in fact, after we got all these, uh, how much electricity they're using, we did a specific training for this building because we know exactly how much electricity they were consuming in the last three years, which was the peak of the day that they consume and so on. So we can create this data and AI, a very specific training, sustainable training, we call it, uh, sustainability practices as well. Are the building managers or the people that you're giving these reports to, are they just like shocked at the data that they have? You know what I mean? So you Absolutely. show them this thing, they're like, really, we're using that much water? Who's Who forgot to turn the gas off kind of thing? Yes, and does absolutely. that make the, sorry, does that make the teaching easier? Yes, uh, I, I guess um, I think it's especially for the building managers. They they are, they have so many responsibilities, right? In the right. building, but they don't have the time to sit and really evaluate this information. But when it's a practical way, when they can see that, well, we were so surprised because we found in September two thousand twenty-two, it was the consumption. It was incredible. High, really, really high. Yeah. And versus how much was it? Was a thousand? It's a it's three hundred thousand US dollars. So we're talking a lot of money. Wow. And 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 then we got this data. Uh, they can understand. And the good thing is about that. It's it's we also in Manabu, we also build communities. We call it sustainability champions communities. So it's not only about the data, but also we believe that building communities inside any property, any company, those people are the driven forces of changes. Yeah. And that's exactly what we did. And we already have six people uh, into that building in Taipei. And there are, we did incredible worship. And those people provide really incredible feedback what we can do to reduce the electricity. Uh, because it's, it could, you can have the most advanced software. Right. But people are the people that trigger yeah, I mean, it always gets it always gets back to what people are going to do with it, right? You're right. You could have the most advanced whiz bang software in the world, and if no one's paying attention to it, if there aren't those sustainability champions actually going out and doing it, it doesn't really matter. Absolutely. Are you are you gathering the data with IoT devices, or are you just doing it in a more traditional way? Yeah, we have two options now. We 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 put in the well, we have they can put the data immediately in our software, right. but now we are in conversations with a few uh, IoT companies in Taipei that we can collect the data. Uh, the thing is, the IoT there are thousands of different IoTs, yeah. different devices, and all collect completely different data. Yeah, and that's that's very complex. Uh, that that's why we 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 are not a IoT. We are not a, a hardware company. We are a software company that we can collect this data and put in our Apple dashboard. And how do you use AI to analyze that data? And I'll can I just give you an example about what I do? Like, yeah. I can take a transcript of this recording, right? And I can run it through AI and do things in, that I could never do even like a year and a half ago. Get insights from it. Just figure out all the topics that you discussed, all the little nuances and stuff like that. So I know like how powerful it can be. But when it's dealing with this type of data, you must be getting some really incredible stuff, particularly if you're comparing it to other buildings and stuff like that. Like, how do you use AI to do this stuff? Absolutely. Uh, because um, uh, my team is, is the guy behind of that. And 
we with this number of data, we can do a lot of things. So that's was in the beginning of this project. Uh, we the company just provide us three months of data and three months of data we can't do anything that actually. much. So we start trying to get more from the last three years. Actually, the AI can provide really incredible information. And one of the things is that the predictions, the AI and machine learning can, for example, personalize our training, sustainability training workshop. Yeah. So we tailor the training, customize the sustainability workshop based on the specificities and challenges of the, each organization. This is because we already know the data, we have machine learning and we can do that. And also for empowering uh, decision-making, it's just uh, empower, uh, for example, sustainability champions uh, to make informed decisions. Also for the building managers, uh, drive positive changes, um, sustainability initiatives. And the most the most part of uh, is predictive modeling, you know, with, with AI machine learning. Uh, we can future resources of, 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 of forecasting what how much uh, we can predict by modeling how much the future resource is used is used in the building for example we can get the historical data and facilitating proactive uh, planning as well <laughs> you're gonna love this remember when we before we started recording I shared that link with you about what I did at the Singapore fintech festival right yes yeah so one of the guests there was this woman one of the guests that sat with us with this woman Sunita Kanan and if you look at her title she's the global lead of AI strategy for Microsoft so just think oh, wow. about what she knows about AI and she's been doing this for 15 years and you know I told you I've been using ChatGPT Chat, Chat for a while now right this and all this generative AI stuff particularly in the context of what I do but I didn't know that you could do this you give it an avatar right so you say presume I'm a 17 year old or like a 25 year old, whatever that I do this, that I think that, that I'm from here. And then it builds that persona for you. Right. And this gets back to the personalization that you were talking about for your, for your teachings. You can say the building manager and her team are these types of people. So now go out and build something for them based on the same information so that I can actually communicate to them in a way that's effective for them, which may be all the same information, but spoken in a different way or said in a different way for a different cohort of people. Are you doing that as well? That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> That's a, well, I would never explore the avatar, but um, I'm, I'm very familiar with the, with the, with the AI and, and yeah. chatbots, for example, because when I was working in Australia, I, I did a research focusing and we use a chatbot for as a, a, a teaching assistance. So we built with my team in Australia and chatbot that they were communicating with the, with the students. Right. The students didn't know they were talking with the AI. I mean, we're talking before before ChatGPT. We were using very very uh, difficult uh, adding the prompts physically very, very complex things. But now we use I try to use the same methodology, the same uh, predictable uh, learning and analysis into uh, my startup, and that's just how I try to. Uh, get analysis of energy, water, resources, and so on. The more you learn about what these individual buildings are doing, obviously the better service you can give kind of the next building on the margin, right? Because the more information you have, just the better at this you can be. So for you, it's it's not just additive, it's multiplicative, right? Because it just keeps growing. I'm curious, if you, I'm curious if you think about this. Let's just say you're teaching it to building managers. So I'm just using them as an example, and you have 10 buildings. That's great. But if you have a thousand buildings, now you're talking about a ton of data, but also another opportunity. And I'm curious if you've considered this. With all the information that you're figuring out, 
right? And all the data that you're gathering, you may actually be able to help them buy insurance for their buildings because of the information that you have. You're like, you know what? You're having this much water coming through your building. Water is the biggest danger, bigger than fire, actually. And if you know how to disintermediate the problems with that, maybe we can offer you some insurance through a sales channel so that that happens. Is you doing that as well? Uh, not yet, but absolutely. We with the data and with the assumption analysis, right? We can create and breakdowns, breakdowns and trends as well. Yeah. So that's that's exactly how we are. I think in the third stage of our development, we want to integrate uh, more solutions into Manabu. Uh, and that could be an entire ecosystem. I call it a holistic approach yeah. in which like I know InsurTech or, or companies like I know electricity companies can be there, right there into our platform that they can immediately provide uh, a service. My brother is a, he has his own ele- electricity company and it, it could be possible that he could be one of the people involved in our platform that they can provide electricity uh, maintenance for any buildings. But this is all possible within a really large scalability and, and holistic holistic uh, uh, solution. So I was just drawing something and I'll show it to you in a second. But I like the way you said platform, right? So you can call Manabu.dev right now a learning company. You could even call it an ed tech company. But to me, it always has seemed like a platform company that looks something like this. Right. And you can yes. see that you have different verticals you can plug into it. This one is, like you said, your brother's maintenance, maintenance, right? Electrical yes. maintenance, teaching, and then insurance. And the more stuff you build into the platform, the more value the platform has. Absolutely. Yeah. I love this. That's an idea. Sorry, you're smiling. So tell me what you think about, like, what other stuff you may do for this going for the future. We are in a bootstrap startup. We are not, um, we are not getting a, VC funding, yeah, and, and we are okay with that at the moment. And but uh, I guess in five years, uh, we believe that uh, it's going to be an, 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 a huge impact of the environment. Companies that really uh, master present the transparency of the ESG data. And now we are just collecting the environmental data, but then it could be the social part, uh, gender equality, salaries, everything could be in one platform. Uh, and and that's it's 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 what I see uh, uh, the, the the next the next stage of us as a very powerful uh, platform to connect or integrate many many solutions as well. Yeah, I mean, I think if you build the right kind of platform, there's no end to what you can plug into it. And you know, if you can build an if you can build a platform that contains an ed tech, that contains an insure tech, and that also contains a bigger fintech and a maintenance tech, now you're building a business that is potentially gigantic, it seems to me, no? Well, let's see. Maybe I hope we can have a, 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 a podcast in the next five years. Let's see how, if it was still growing. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope it's sooner than five years. What I really like to do for the companies that come on the show is I like to come back in six to nine months just to see, right? Because like you said, if you're building a bootstrap company, at some level, you have to create your own income, and then you've got to feed you've got to feed yourself off of that income and grow off of that. And at some point, if you bootstrap long enough, you may not need to raise external capital, which in my mind, Absolutely. which in my mind is the best way to build a business because then you don't remember you said this at the beginning. I didn't want to work for anybody, and I think people forget this. But when you raise venture capital money, you're now working for somebody again. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think it is a, a new trend, I guess, in 2023. And there are many, we, we are very really grateful. I think I have so many friends, founders, they already have VCs and, right. and they invest, invest in large investment. But um, um, we, we, we know that we take longer as a, as a small team yep. and bootstrap. But at the same time, the independency, uh, I'm the decision, decision maker. Uh, I'm the person, the sole founder, right. 100% on my company. And, and I don't want to feel that uh, I get a new board of in my team and, and then they kick me out of like what's happening with the largest tech companies nowadays. So it's 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 a very risky as well. But but we I'm I'm really glad I met, met some very valued people in yeah. this journey and I believe that VACs are very valuable for any well, startup. I guess I look at it as kind of like getting married. You should not get married when you're twenty-two. Maybe 40 yes. is probably the right age, right? Because now you've lived all this stuff. You've built something internally about yourself. And I look at venture capitalists the same way. Let them be there to accelerate your growth. You've already figured it out. You're now growing. And now I need to like superpower or power up my business. I'll take your 10 million bucks to do that. But I don't need your 400 grand today to get yes. to that point. I think it's the way that I look at it, right? And it's just like, because it's just Absolutely. as dangerous as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. There's a theme here for you, right? And I think that part of that theme, and tell me where I'm wrong, is that you've always been kind of creating this community around sustainability, whether it was on the beach with the kayaks and cleaning up the beach, and I, I mean this so really seriously, or whether it was when you were in Australia and doing that digital nomad kind of community building, you've kind of figured out a way to say, I know how to get support for what I'm doing, and if I can build that support system around me, I can kind of build almost anything, right? But you've kind of made this mm -hmm. decision to go down the ESG and sustainability route, which, you know, thankfully, it's a, great, it's a great pathway to be on. What else do you do, though? Do you want to talk about the Founder Institute in Korea? Because I think this is a, just another way of giving back as well and supporting other people while you have people supporting you. Can you talk about that a little bit, too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, since September, September this year, I was invited to be a part of a Founder Institute, and I just... Uh, I'm um, support uh, a few international startups, basically all from Korea, to expand nice. their businesses in in Japan. And not only that, I also part of the in uh, in a PA NIPA. NIPA is a national uh, organization in Korea as well. So I'm I'm a senior advisor for the Super. for the Korean government as well, and that's kind of organization that I also I I support um, and I provide some uh, entrepreneur because I'm 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 a, I'm a founder in Japan. So I know that what is the entrepreneurial journey. Um, I can briefly discuss with them uh, my journey, my own experience, right. uh, and and also why I moved to Japan and and, and my, my how I can help them. It's part of the collaboration. And back to eight years ago when I started building my communities, it's all about giving back to the society. This is the yeah. very important things is uh, how we can share the same vision that I have with my community and we can grow with other companies and, and, and other startups because it's really painful when you see others like myself uh, go to a new country and experience uh, language barrier, um, uh, the bureaucracy of many uh, systems. Yeah. Uh, but then when you have a community, we can all uh, help each other. And, and it's really, really good. So I like to say that going to a new country, right? Everything looks super opaque when you get there. Like, why is it set up this way? This makes no sense. And I think every country is the same way. Look, you said you were in the Netherlands, you're in Australia. You're in Japan, Chile and in Japan, Korea, yeah, in Korea, and all of those systems are different at scale, 
And on yes. day one, when you walk into the first one, you get to Australia, maybe your first time outside of Chile, and you say, like, what is going on here? Mm, but then you slowly figure it out. And I think what happens, and again, tell me if you think I'm right here, is that then the next time you go into a new place, you're like, okay, this place is also upside down, but it has rules and it has a system and it has organization. Now I just need to figure out this new system. Is that fair? Mm. Yes. I think this is part of our myself as a digital technomats and I decided to take um do this pathway in my life in my twenties. Yeah. But now I'm 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 living in Japan now. I'm, right. I'm not traveling anymore. I have my wife here, I have to be here. Uh, and I believe that's um yeah the complexity of, of any ecosystems uh it's also part of how governments and internal government policies and and the public sector and universities and startup can work together. Yeah. I guess this this is the key and very fundamental. And uh, I couldn't I couldn't do things, uh, for example, here if I don't if I didn't know that there is a global global startup center right. that can support and provide um, uh, easy access to any uh, government uh, support from startups. So. Look, I love what you're building. It was so awesome to have this conversation with you. Pablo Riveras, the founder of Manabu.dev, and just so much more. You have to promise me that as you continue to grow, you'll come back on the show. It doesn't even have to be a specific set time. You're welcome to come back anytime you want to update. If big things change, I'll just be waiting for you to come back on the show. I really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I hope to see you soon and talk to you and give you a Good updated about my startup as well. Hopefully next time in person in Fukuoka. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much.